Lost Credit, The Secret Atari Heroes of GCC. When I was a preteen in the early 80s, I loved Atari. It seemed like every great video game that came to arcades had their name on it. There were games like Asteroids and Missile Command and Battlezone and Tempest, just to name a few. But there were others like Dig Dug, Pole Position, and Food Fight that I liked just as much, if not even more, that also carried the Atari name, but were not actually made by Atari. Atari was so big in the early 80s and the arcade industry was so hot that not only did Atari make their own arcade games, but they also licensed them from other companies to distribute around the world. I found out by reading various magazines at the time that both Pole Position and Dig Dug were actually made by Namco, and Food Fight and the whole Atari 7800 console were made by a company named GCC, and the name GCC stuck in my mind. Food Fight was a standout game in the arcades that featured fast action, cute characters, and a humorous premise. A couple years ago, I had the pleasure of interviewing the creator of that game, Jonathan Hurd. Food Fight has long been a favorite arcade game in the vertical blank. I've always wondered how it was made and why the new Atari never actually acknowledged its existence. Jonathan told an amazing story of working for GCC in the early 80s. His stories of how he came up with the idea for Food Fight how the game advanced in design felt like a masterclass in golden age arcade game creation. The way I came up with the idea, you know, given Kevin Curran's uh, direction to come up with an idea for a video game, build it, we'll all get rich. So, you know, I was a, a fairly avid video game player, but I also had a job during the day. So now I had plenty of, you know, time to really think about this and just focus on it. So I played a lot of games. Um, we had a few in the office, but I also went to arcades. And I was thinking, you know, I want something that isn't shooting at people. There were all there were tons of games that involved shooting, obviously. And and I thought, you know, that's not great in terms of attracting women to play. And also, you know, wouldn't it be great to have a game that just has more of a fun tone to it? <clears throat> so I thought, what else could a what else could the fire button be on a game? And I thought, throw, because I play baseball. And okay, what could we throw? And then food popped into my mind. And then I immediately thought, that is the perfect idea for a video game. Call it Food Fight. And, that, and then I thought, I better do this game before anyone else realizes that there could be a, a game called Food Fight that would involve throwing <laughs> food. I was mesmerized by Hurd's easygoing nature and his intelligence. It made me want to interview more and more people from GCC. Soon after, I landed an interview with GCC hardware engineer and unofficial spokesman Steve Golson. In 2016, Golson gave a talk to the Game Developers Conference about the making of Ms. Pac-Man. I'd actually read through his presentation from the time and was fascinated by the story. In our interview, Steve gave some early insight into how GCC hardware is designed, and we talked about some of the intricacies of how Midway, Namco, and GCC combined to create Ms. Pac-Man. Midway had to get permission from Namco, and Namco actually signed off on the, the character design for the female Pac-Man. You, you see a lot of people talking about how Namco did not know about it. That is not true. Namco absolutely knew about it. Uh, Nakamura-san knew about the character and signed off on it. So uh, Midway says to to uh, Namco, because basically from Midway's point of view, this was designed as a kit 
right? We designed it. I designed it. I was the hardware guy. Designed it as a kit that would plug onto an existing Pac-Man cabinet. So that's how they built it. It's basically a Pac-Man circuit board with this little second board attached and plugged into it. Amazing. story of GCC felt deep and interesting. What I wanted to know, though, was the story of the Atari 7800, the great lost game console that was slated for release in 1984. GCC designed the console and many of the original games, and Steve Golson had a lot to say about the Atari 7800. In early 83, we'd start to, okay, what, what can we do? Oh, well, we'll take TIA and we'll, like, add more players and missiles. And then, oh, you know, oh, well, gee. And so that's got got us thinking about what would we do. And then fairly quickly, it was, okay, we're not gonna modify TIA. We'll just stick a TIA on board. And that gets your compatibility because 2600 compatibility was one of the big things, right? right? This is gonna be, this is, what can we do to replace 2600? What can we do to enhance 2600 for now? So it's like, oh, well, we'll get compatibility by just, we'll just put a TIA on the board and then we'll do our own graphics, whatever we want. And that gets our compatibility. Great, what can we do? And that led us very quickly to Maria and the, the Maria architecture and how that is gonna work. And so boom, off we go doing Maria. Originally we called it 3600 was our code name for it. And so all the development time, it was, this is the 3600. It's a 2600 goosed a little bit. We also talked a bit about how GCC credits are so hard to find and how one day maybe that will be rectified. So finding the credits for stuff that GCC worked on is very difficult to find out who worked on them. And I, I mean, there's yes. very hard, right? You'll see like, yes. done a GCC, like nobody knows, you know? I could I could dig it out. We had a, 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 a company newsletter that we put out every week or so. Oh, that's amazing. And it, it would have a, uh, and I have almost a complete set of that newsletter. Uh, it, was, it was called Erte, and it's on my list of things to do is <laughs> to scan it. You know, and have the PDFs, and because uh, it would be, I, I'm sure you, you, you fans would have an amazing time with it. But one of the most interesting things Steve said was how GCC considered themselves a secret weapon for Atari. We tried to keep a very low profile. We did not want people to know about us. Once we started doing work for Atari, we just figured, hey, we do not need to. People do not need to know about us. As long as we get paid, that's all we care about. And we'll just uh, be our little quiet secret selves. It's cool. And stuck in Cambridge. Steve also mentioned some tantalizing details about the Atari 2600 and hinted at a second interview to come. The first work we did on VCS, and, and that's, that's a fun story for another day, Steve, yeah. is how did we get started doing VCS cards? Because we were doing coin-op, right? That was our thing, right, right from the start, oh, we're doing coin-op. So how did we get started doing VCS? But we did in early, mid-82. But then COVID happened. And for almost four years, we could never connect. That meant no VCS discussion and no GCC newsletters. Recently, I've been working on some Atari 7800 tutorials and got interested in all the amazing title screens in some of the games. I went back and played 
some of the Atari VCS games from 1982 and 1983, and noticed they also had some great title screens. Then it occurred to me that many of those title screens were probably designed by GCC, so I emailed Steve Golson about title screens, and he pointed me towards Michael Feinstein, a GCC programmer who worked on VCS games. When I went looking to see what games Michael Feinstein made, I found it incredibly difficult to get a full list. There just did not seem to be any one place that had the correct credits for the games that were made by GCC. Some of it has leaked over the years or spread out to sites like Atari Age, Atari Protos, Atari Mania, and Moby Games, but no place seemed to have the comprehensive credits for these games recorded. This is Atari Inc.'s fault, of course. By never giving their original programmers credit, and then secretly outsourcing a good portion of their games work to GCC in the early 80s, they, in effect, made it nearly impossible to know the names of the people that worked in these games. And why did I care? Well, I'd say that everyone deserves credit. So much so, in fact, that I believe it's credit is one of the reasons why Atari didn't survive the Golden Age in the first place. But also, these people are boyhood heroes of mine, and I like to know their names. This situation with the credits became embarrassing when I talked to Michael Feinstein. Moby Games had said he worked on Battlezone and Jungle Hunt. I told Michael I knew this, but he came back and told me he'd worked on several more games, including Phoenix, Joust, and the Atari 7800 game Desert Falcon. I was embarrassed that I could not approach him knowing all of his game credits. Despite this lack of information, the interview with Michael went really well. We First, we talked about the games he worked on, like his first game, Phoenix. I graduated on a Friday and on Monday, I was at work there. So How fun. Uh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Cool. But it was a blast. And, you know, like I said, great environment. It was a lot of fun. You know, we were working really hard and we cranked these games out. And, um, you know, but it, the thing you have to realize about these games is because of the hardware constraints, you know, what we would did is we would kind of write something that wouldn't fit into a cartridge, basically too, too big, too many capabilities. And then we had to like trim it down to something that would just barely fit, <laughs> yeah. right? Because the cartridges, like they were generally eight, eight K of ROM, very tiny. And, um, you know, I remember the first Phoenix, like that when we just like wrote everything we, we wanted to do and it worked was probably twice that size. Oh, and we wow. cut out part, parts of the game and, you know, optimize, optimize, optimize. And we eventually got it to fit into eight K just, just, just. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's all part of the process too. So it's not just like write it from start to finish. It's not like writing a paper, right? Like right from the beginning to the end, they're like, you're always trying to figure out what can we do? What can we do? How do we make it better? And we, you know, we were playing each other's games throughout. So we had a big lab and just, you know, big open space. We've all got our games going. And as we're making progress on the games, we're all walking around and, you know, kind of playing each other's games and talking and looking at it and suggesting so it was just such a great creative environment to try to get the best out of it and um yeah i mean we got the game done on time and there were commercials on tv by uh, christmas time it was very exciting while doing this i rediscovered one of his games desert falcon which sent me on a kind of vision quest into the depths of that title mike and i also talked about the fact that credits are hard to find and not really collected anywhere and this made me even more interested. Has anyone ever collected the credits for GCC games? On Twitter, I asked if anyone was interested and I got a message almost instantly. Soundtrack specialist said, if Michael Feinstein has any idea who went GCC program pole position for the A8-5200, that would be a true find. See, it was not just me. It seemed like the credits for many GCC games were a mystery. Michael returned later that week with an email saying he could get me an interview with one of GCC's founders, Doug McRae. 
I jumped at the chance. Before the interview, Doug sent me a list of credits that he had recently gathered. Then he sent me a staff photo of GCC with many of the people named. This was amazing. I felt like I was on the cusp of solving the riddle of GCC. And then we did our interview. Here is that interview. So tell me, okay, so I'm, I'm a huge, obviously a huge GCC fan. You know that already. That might be weird for you to hear that someone's a GCC fan, or is it weird? Do you know that people enjoy all the things you did? Um, I do know it. I often talk with people that know of the work, uh, but very rarely do people understand who GCC was and uh, who all was involved in the development of all the games. That's one of my goals here is to unearth your your credit, right? About who did what, because I think people should get credit for what they did, especially when um, they're pioneering things, right? That nobody knows about, but not nobody, but you know what I mean? Not as many people as you believe should should know about them. So let's talk about that a bit. How did GCC get started and how did you then get working with Atari? The very abbreviated uh, beginning uh, was I somewhat inherited a pinball machine from my brother when he graduated college, and I set it up at an MIT dorm, and the pinball machine started pulling in lots of quarters, and this sounded fun, so I bought another one, and um, after those two, brought on a partner, Kevin Curran. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're the you're the guy who started the whole thing then. Well, if you look at it that way, my brother probably was, but- uh, Okay, listen, we'll give your brother credit. And Doug, who was driving back and forth to New Jersey anyway, even as a freshman, because he had a car, which was really cool, and he had a girlfriend, which was really cool. Which is cool. So he was always commuting back and forth. He's like, I'll bring my this pinball game. So he brings this Pioneer game and sets it up in the common room. And everyone was like, wow, this is really cool. And so Doug is, huh, I guess I'm making money at having this <laughs> pinball game. It's like, gee, this is kind of interesting. And so he and Kevin started talking about this and said, gee, we should, why don't we partner up and we'll do this, we'll buy a new game and we'll, we'll like expand this business. And so the two of them, Doug and Kevin, started this, this little partnership and they, they pooled their money. They, they said, we'll split this 50-50. And their, the, the first game they bought was, um, I believe, Playboy. Right. Um, which I think is Bally, Bally Playboy. Uh, we had two pinball machines. They were both doing well, and we bought uh, our first video game, a couple more pinball machines. And before you know it, we were operating about 20 video games and pinball machines on the MIT campus. We were running around collecting quarters out of them and uh, paying our tuition. So and a little bit like, if you know the history of Atari, how Atari started with the, with the arcade route. So you're, you got the same roots here about 10 years later. Yes. And so uh, we were uh, very much enjoying the business, but it was laborious that we were uh, often going around to the different dorms at 12, 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, emptying out the quarters, fixing them. And we started scratching our head and say, are we on the right side of this business? And what we really thought would be fun would, uh, would be to design the games. Yeah. And uh, we did not know how to design a game. You know, particularly that an arcade game is a gigantic cabinet, and we had no idea how that would get manufactured, uh, but we knew how to code. And so we looked at what was going on in our 20 machines, uh, three of which were missile commands. 
and they were uh, very, very hot on the MIT campus. Uh, we're, we're all into ICBMs and blowing <laughs> up uh, cities and that kind of stuff, kind of playing war games. And the first week we put in uh, our first missile command, pulled in, I think, like $600 in quarters. And the game only cost $2,500 or only. And we thought we we're going to make it back in about four weeks. As you can probably guess, that people started playing it less and playing it longer. They got bored and they got good. And so we started talking and saying, it'd be really neat to be able to add features to it, to make it more interesting and to make it harder. And we started looking around and the only thing that was really available at the time were speed up kits. And uh, they would either by changing the code a little bit or changing the crystal would make the game play faster. And we did not think this was really fair to consumers uh, that you're just making it harder by speeding everything up and sometimes to a very unnatural uh, speed. It didn't really feel like the same game anymore. So by so, crystal, you mean speeding up the time clock on the motherboard? Is that? that that's correct. Okay. Uh, so people would swap out the crystal and hope that the processor could keep up. Um, <laughs> so we, we looked at that and finally we said, no, what we really need to do is write some changes to the game, in effect, create a sequel to Missile Command and uh, add that to the cabinets we have. And we had three cabinets and knew there was tens of thousands of them out there. So we started disassembling the Missile Command code, figured out pretty much exactly how the game worked, uh, how all the code interacted. And uh, we started designing the sequel or how to make changes to the game to add in new features. We did this during spring break our senior year, rather than going down to uh, Fort Lauderdale or wherever anybody else would be going. Uh, we stayed, bought a in-circuit emulator, which uh, was $25,000, wow. other equipment for another $25,000, and pretty much had invested $50,000 during spring break into creating this add-on or whatever we wanted to call it to Missile Command. And pretty much we worked around the clock because we had one uh, keyboard you could type on and try the code. And so we played tag team, uh, <laughs> uh, all of us. Eight hour shifts. Chance to make changes to the code and look at it. But at the same time, we were also trying to look at the intellectual property issue of how do you change a game without getting involved in copyright infringement? Some people had uh, gone into the ROMs of some games found some constants, uh, changed them, and it made it run faster or you know, accidentally caused something to happen differently. And then they would just make duplicates of those ROMs. And that obviously was copyright infringement to us because you were taking code and modifying it, but then selling the original code along with the modifications. Right. And our understanding of copyright law, which was very, very young at the time, particularly in terms of video games, was that was wrong. We wanted to do it a different way. So we uh, built out hardware that would connect into where the ROMs went. And then you put the ROMs on our board. And we had our own ROMs with our own instructions and a circuit that would overlay our instructions over the original Missile Command instructions when it got to certain points. So we could uh, have a couple of routines that would uh, draw the satellite coming across the screen and occasionally launch that rather than the plane coming across and things like that. 
we, we very much understood how the game worked uh, so that we could then add things to it and make it more challenging, more exciting. And so we created that, uh, put our ROMs on the board. We would not copy the Atari code. We would have you take the ROMs you already bought when you bought the missile command, put them on our board, and we would watch the address lines and at certain times overlay our code on top of the Atari code as our way of not worrying about copying the Atari object code. What did Atari think? Um, Atari was looking at it and saying, and we, we hear a lot of this later on down the line, copyright uh, or the, the protection of their industry was paramount to them, that they were very concerned uh, that these enhancement kits, as we were calling it, could create longer life out of the games and planned obsolescence uh, was a big part of what they're doing. Ah, uh, that makes a lot enjoy of sense. selling brand new cabinets and uh, getting mm -hmm. new revenue. When we extended out lives of games, we were hurting new revenue to Atari. The, the relationship between the game maker and the the arcade owner, being that the arcade owner really wants to extend the life, the manufacturer not really in their best interest. And you're sitting in the middle, basically helping the arcade owner extend the life of games they already own. What do they spend on your, your kit? So it's, uh, a missile command from Atari cost uh, roughly $2,800 or $3,000 at the time, maybe $2,500. Uh, our kit sold for $299 or $295 uh, out of the back of magazines. And did you sell any of those? We did. We uh, made them for about $20 a piece, uh, sold over 1000 And so spring break our senior year or spring uh, semester, as it turned into, we uh, sold uh, about $300,000 worth of uh, boards and ran about a quarter million dollar profit. Wow. See, this is Doug McRae, Kevin Kern, and Steve Golson. And anybody else at the time? Yeah, uh, a couple of others, uh, Larry Dennison and Chris Rode. And, uh, and so all five of you guys, how many of you guys continued on with your MIT education at the time? Let's see. Larry finished up uh, and... Uh, that was about it. <laughs> oh, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. It was way more fun than going to class. So we ended up, you know, so, so myself, I was supposed to graduate in June of 81. Doug was supposed to graduate, I think, although he was in a five-year dual degree program at that point. So maybe he, uh, Kevin, I think, was supposed to graduate. And we ended up like, yeah, sorry, we're just not going to. Right. <laughs> not, not yeah. This is so much fun. Stop going to class and and uh, just just play with these games. This is just just an incredible amount of fun. <laughs> so you saw you got you saw the 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 light and moved on. So did so what happened? We uh, started shipping the units, and we we had finished engineering of it, and said, well, this is great. Money is pouring in. And the concept of making these enhancement kits uh, works really well in the marketplace. So we started the, the second enhancement kit. We had looked and said, what's the hottest game out there that has kind of the same problem as Missile Command uh, does of the fact that players get very, very good and can play forever and get very, get very, very good by being bored. Uh, they, they would <laughs> learn patterns and whatever. Right. And the game we targeted was Pac-Man. Uh, it was a game where people had memorized the patterns uh, so they could play for hours uh, and 
they were bored of it. Once they figured out the pattern, uh, they could play for hours, but no one really wanted to. Or, you know, besides a few people that want to put up high scores and whatever. While Pac-Man was an amazingly successful game, its revenue fell off very quickly also uh, for the arcade owners. So we started lo looking at the enhancement kit to Pac-Man and planned on marketing it the same way out of the back of magazines, uh, the trade magazines. And we're developing that in the summer uh, of 1981 when we got notice from Atari, or not from Atari, but uh, about Atari, that they were getting ready to sue us over uh, intellectual property issues. Turned around, uh, we sued them first uh, so we could get the venue in Boston. And then we fought a couple of skirmishes in uh, federal district court here in Boston on the issues of intellectual properties. Brand new to uh, the judges, brand new to uh, lawyers and everything else, because it really had not been defined what is protectable and how you protect it in the intellectual property space. Or what was thought initially by Atari is we had copied their code. Right. And so we were smiling, going, no, we did not copy their code. <laughs> we, we did this correct. Uh, but then there are charges of you know, dilution of trademark and misrepresentation of origin of pretty much saying that a consumer out there doesn't know that this is not a pure Atari product um, and uh, that we were representing ourselves somewhat as Atari's sequel. And it was unclear who was going to win in the end. Atari came to us and uh, said, you know, what do you guys really want out of this? You know, and it, it, we did not answer. We just wanted to sell another quarter million dollars of profit or whatever. We thought we were on something big. We said, we want to do video games. We really love this. Right. And so uh, the, we started negotiations with Atari, and they pretty much gave us a package to go away. Here is Steve Golson. And then finally, Atari was very impressed technically with what we had accomplished. They looked at our kit and how we did it, the way we did the copy protection, they thought was very clever, which we got a patent on, by the way. They thought that was very clever. They thought the whole gameplay was clever. They finally were like, what do you guys want? I think this was Skip Paul talking to Kevin and Doug, you know, they have in between a deposition or something. Doug and Kevin were like, we want to keep designing games. They said, we want to design enhancement kits as a starting point for designing complete arcade games. And Atari is like, well, okay, sure. Why don't you design games for us? Well, why don't you drop your damn lawsuit? That's and that's what happened. And so so Atari drops their lawsuit and the various uh, negotiations between Kevin and Doug and Atari and Warner, Warner owned Atari agreement. Our development agreement was not with Atari, but was with Warner communication. Manny Gerard and Skip Paul and the Hyatt people, they were very impressed with us technically and thought we could do amazing things for Atari. Here is Doug McCray. They offered us a development agreement where they would fund our company at $50,000 a month for 24 months. And that's pretty good. You can do the math. <laughs> uh, for a couple of kids at MIT, uh, uh, you know, it, it was great. And you done the math yet? 1.2 million? Yes. It was being done uh, on the assumption, as we found out later, getting to know uh, Atari's attorneys. Uh, it was being done primarily to just say, 
they'll go away. Uh, they'll take that $1.2 million and go back to school and get their degrees, or they'll go sit on the beach. We don't care. They just wanted a stipulation that we would not do any more enhancement kits. And uh, we pretty much agreed to that with a couple of caveats. Caveat one was we would not do any enhancement kits without the manufacturer's approval that owned the original game. And Atari looked at that and go, that was pretty simple because why would any manufacturer ever approve of an enhancement kit? The second one was that we had grandiose plans that, you know, someday we may go public or what might happen, you know, with our tiny little company, or we'd be trying to get venture money or something. So we asked that Atari would drop the case against us with prejudice, uh, meaning they should not have sued us in the first place. They had, and they were backing off on it. So both of those happened. And shortly after that happened, uh, Kevin Curran flew out to uh, Chicago and met with the president of Bally Midway and said, I want to show you our enhancement kit. We just beat Atari in Boston federal court. And we would like not to have to sue you for declaratory judgment, figure out whether we can go this way. We would just like to get your agreement up front. We thought we're being clever, bluffing our way through. What was happening right about the same time was the production of Pac-Man was ending and they did not have anything to follow it up. There was no sequel done by Namco. There was no sequel done by Midway or uh, by Bally. And their, their attempts at sequels would not come for another uh, couple of years. Right. So we walked in and showed them what suddenly became the sequel to Pac-Man. Steve Coulson. So, so the kit for Pac-Man, um, at, at some point, it got the name Crazy Auto. And none of us have been able to remember why that came about. Um, but it was called Crazy Auto. We had a, uh, one of our friends from MIT, um, his older sister um, named uh, Patty Goodson, was a musician. She was a professional musician living in New York City. And so, uh, you know, artistic, creative type. And we um, asked her to help us out with some of the design, the, the uh, artwork and character design and whatnot. And I think that's where the name Crazy Auto came from, was okay. from Patty. But she does not remember. So <laughs> truly, we do not, we do not know. But anyway, the name Crazy Auto came up. And so it was a kit for Pac-Man. And some of what we learned from the Atari lawsuit, which was, okay, do not reuse any of the characters from the initial game. So change them a little bit. So we took Pac-Man and basically made it look like the Pac-Man character from the side of the Pac-Man cabinet. Uh -huh. You ever look at the side of a Pac-Man cabinet, it's got this character Pac-Man with legs and blue eyes and this sort of this animated thing. He's running. Yeah, he's running. And so that was Crazy Otto. And it had this 3D sort of look where Otto would... And, and uh, while it was called Crazy Otto at the time, and uh, the character had legs and was quite different, it quickly became Ms. Pac-Man with a whole bunch of steps in between. But... Um, uh, do you remember um, whose concept Miss Pac-Man was? The fact of it being a sequel uh, came out of the first meeting uh, between Kevin and the president of Midway. Uh, 
but the name kept changing. It started off as Pac-Woman and Super Pac-Man and Miss Pac-Man, M-I-S-S, right. until someone pointed out that in the third intermission, out comes uh, Junior Pac-Man. So they <laughs> married, uh, so it became Mrs. And then uh, one of the wives of our programmers uh, said, we can't do Mrs. anymore, it should be Ms. So I went to Ms. and eventually shipped that way. Uh, but many iterations, one with Ms. Pac-Man character having red hair, long red hair, and all kinds of things, but ended up with a uh, beauty mark, a bow, and some lipstick. Okay, so that was successful. Oh, this, this it was very lucrative and continued to be for 30 years about various uh, incarnations of Ms. Pac-Man going out on cell phones and computer games and all so kinds of and does, do you guys still own that or does someone else own Miss Pac-Man now? We could spend a couple hours talking about that. We do not own it. <laughs> I, I say that. I know that when we talked to Jonathan Hurd a couple of years ago, when we were doing an episode about Food Fight, because Food Fight for my brother and I, that was our favorite arcade game, right? And, and we thought that was amazing and didn't understand why people didn't like it more. He said he was there when Miss Pac-Man was being designed. He First day on the job, I also noticed that my new colleagues were getting putting the finishing touches on Ms. Pac-Man, the arcade game. And I said, hey, can I help you guys? They were under the gun. And um, Mike Horowitz, who was one of the developers of Ms. Pac-Man, said, yeah, her lips are looking a little funny. Could you uh, see if you can fix them up? And so I spent a, a few minutes uh, working on the pixels around her, red and yellow pixels around her lips. And then uh, they sent out the ROMs to Bally Midway. So um, I always say, I'll put the finishing touches on Ms. Pac-Man's lips. Yeah, well, so Jonathan uh, w uh, came on very early. Uh, what had happened is we were finishing up Ms. Pac-Man, what was Crazy Auto at the time, and trying to figure out what's next. And as we're going in parallel, the uh, Atari contract got signed, and we now had this development agreement to develop games for Atari. Atari never really meant for us to develop games. Right. But we started hiring engineers out of MIT and Harvard and uh, Cornell and a few other schools uh, and building up a team to develop video games. So Jonathan in Food Fight was doing, uh, I think, our first uh, arcade game from scratch. And so he started on that with a couple of other games being developed uh, for the arcade. And we got a, uh, we were talking with Atari Marketing and they said, we are shorthanded on getting cartridges out there for the home system. They uh, Meaning developers are leaving Atari or something. They did not have enough personnel. I, I think it was a whole combination of things. Uh, they had lost uh, people to Activision and iMagic. Um, they were still expanding their business. Uh, titles uh, that they wanted converted were coming in very, very fast and trying to move fast enough for the market, they mentioned to us that uh, you know maybe we could try doing uh, a couple of 2600 cartridges. Atari's short history by 1981 is as iconic as it is confusing. They were started as Siji in 1972 by Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney, and their first hire became the legend known as Al Alcorn. 
that year they produced Pong and as well and the entire video game business was launched. Soon after, Ted Dabney left or was pushed out depending on who you talk to, leaving Nolan Bushnell as the main man. Atari made money through these years but was never really a stable business. However, Bushnell was well liked by his employees. He was famous for treating his technical staff very well with all sorts of perks like Friday beer parties and maybe a hot tub or two. After lots of coin ops and some home versions of Pong, Atari wanted to make the Atari VCS video game console but was strapped for cash. To fund the console, Bushnell sold Atari to Warner Communications. They became a wholly owned subsidiary of that company. Warner leadership in Bushnell never saw eye to eye, and after a few years of turmoil and poor sales of the Atari VCS, Bushnell was pushed out and Ray Kassar became the head of Atari. Under Ray Kassar, Atari licensed Space Invaders for release in 1980, and it became a huge hit, basically creating the home video game business as we know it. At the same time, under Kassar, the technical focus of Atari was minimized in favor of sales. A follow-up to the VCS was shelved in 1979 and became the Atari 400-800 computer line. Frustrated early engineers like Al Alcorn left, but worse, four of the original VCS programmers, David Crane, Bob Whitehead, Alan Miller, and Larry Kaplan, left to form Activision to compete directly with Atari. This meant that by 1981, much of the Atari that was once Atari as we knew as kids in the 70s was gone. They could still make coin-operated games like the best of them, but almost everything else was replaced by a giant media conglomerate who thought they understood a brand new business because they had one hit home game under their belts. Because of this, Atari went on a plan to license arcade games. They licensed Pac-Man from Namco and set out to make the game as economical as possible. This meant the whole game had to fit on 4K ROM space on technology that was now five years old. When Pac-Man was finally released in 1982, after a huge marketing blitz, the response was swift. It looked and played nothing like the arcade game. While itself was an okay game, it could not match the marketing hype created by Warner Communications. It was one of the first games to receive almost universally awful reviews from the burgeoning video game press. This sent Warner looking for answers as how to move forward with their home division and the Atari VCS. One of those answers was GCC. Here is Doug McCray. Um, the first one they handed to us uh, was Rubik's Cube, where they were in the process of licensing Rubik's Cube the licensing deal fell through as we were trying to program uh, Rubik's Cube. And then Atari said, well, then let's just do it, the Atari Video Cube. And it released uh, as the first game we worked on. And shortly after, Atari signed the license. And so it got redone as Rubik's Cube, a second game under a different serial number, but you know, pretty much the same code. Oh, so that's your first game. That was the first release thing you guys, when, when was this, do you know, in 82, sometime in 82? This would be 82, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I always I thought Vanguard was your first game release, but that's not, I guess, not true. Vanguard may have beaten it out. I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, the first one we started working on was Rubik's Cube. Um, we, it, it took a little longer to try to figure out gameplay and whatever, uh, Vanguard uh, got started by Dave Payne, and he was doing a direct conversion, which is what most of our games were that we did, where just trying to figure out the uh, best possible way to reproduce the game on the 2600 which of course is, is a very limited system and your role at this time doug you you did you could you code miss pac-man the arcade game I did some of it, yes. Okay, um, so so, but now your role has changed a bit. I know you became the manager of developers at some point. So uh, I, I think you're envisioning this uh, glorious uh, <laughs> board chart or something. And I see if one ever existed, uh, we don't have it. Uh, 
And okay, I understood. <laughs> so Kevin and I have been partners uh, now for uh, a couple of years in business, and we learned quite well how to separate out what one person liked to do and what the other person liked to do. Uh, Kevin enjoyed a lot of the business stuff and hiring and uh, other things around that. And I enjoyed both the engineering and doing some myself, but also working with the engineers um, to help figure out how we're going to do all these games and whatever. So technically, I was VP of engineering and he was CEO or whatever. Uh, I might have been CTO, but I, I don't think we even took a uh, breath long enough to do an org chart or whatever. Early <laughs> on. But you uh, kind of, <clears throat> you led the technical side and he led the business side. Correct. And, Wozniak and Jobs, but probably doesn't really compute the same because you guys are pr different personalities than that. Correct, but um, not a not a bad analogy. Um, Bushnell Alcorn, something, maybe. something, <laughs> <laughs> or okay. So I I've never done this before. Um, you sent us a list of credits. Do you mind if I share that right now and we we talk about it a little bit? Go right ahead. Okay, let me see if I can get this shared up. I have to caution that that list is probably only 98% accurate. Uh, I've been trying to work on uh, getting it uh, complete and going back to many people and checking out their memory, but it is 98% correct and there's probably an error or two. We'll go through it and and when we ha and when you have something that you think is 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 more complete, we'll find a place a good home for it. Sure. Um okay, so I see here uh, the first one on the list here is Atari Video Cube. That one we we talked about. I know that if we go down a little bit on this list, that Vanguard came out very soon, and so did Phoenix. Phoenix as well. So that Mike uh, Mike Feinstein said that you worked on those. Do you remember the the first set of games that Atari actually do, or or how did you did they assign you? games or did you just take a look at the list of licenses and start working on them well that was an area that quickly became i think unfair to the uh california engineers at atari that we were yeah assigned the first couple vanguard uh phoenix rubik's cube and then we started realizing that um atari was licensing most of the very good arcade games and the license took a while to get done uh, from when a game first got out there. And hence, the programmers always got started late. Uh, and I'm sure you've heard lots of stories, particularly ET and others, that the license came in so late. But of course, marketing and sales wanted it in time for Christmas or whatever. And so there was a very small, unfair window uh, for developers to get it done. We, on the other hand, decided to get ahead of the curve uh, since we were not Atari employees or whatever, and looked at it and said, well, if we can identify the hottest games in advance of the licensing getting done, we can get a head start on it. Some might not ever get licensed, but we might as well give it a try. And so uh, games like Pole Position, I went over uh, to Japan with uh, a, uh, another engineer and a large uh, video camera that we would take turns putting on our shoulder <laughs> and filming the other person playing the game. Pole Position was not even in the States yet, but we had heard about it being a hot game uh, that Atari might license or might actually build. 
So we went over, played it, came back with hours of footage and got started on programming the game. Wow. Wow. Then by the time Atari licensed the game, both for arcade and for the home, uh, we unveiled that we were two thirds away done. And so we got the assignment to do pole position, which was a hot game. And uh, we were already quite a bit down the line. So we is, were the, is this okay? Choice. So you you are credited on tons of these things, um, which is amazing. And is pole position the first one you worked on? Uh, no, I, I worked on Rubik's Cube first. Okay, Rubik's Cube was your first one. I I think it was eight or ten of us all being able to just attack whatever we got, try figuring out uh, how to do programming for them. Uh, so we were all just comparing notes and uh, trying to figure out uh, pointers to how to push the 2600 to produce even better graphics and gameplay. And yeah, well, so um, we, we were often sharing uh, our code from game to game, uh, getting together. Uh, we, we're all in one gigantic bullpen type room with everybody having their own in-circuit emulator um, to help, you know, kind of speed up the whole thing. And uh, so as, as we would develop, we were discussing, you know, different techniques to how to get more graphics up there. And uh, a lot of the what was called the game kernel the portion that uh, dr uh drew the screen a lot of that was shared from game to game as we got really really good at what later became known as racing the beam and right. uh, counting cycles and everything that had to be done and uh, so we were throwing you know large amounts of mit and harvard engineers at uh, attacking uh, 2k and 4k games so i got a question for you about the finances so you're getting paid $54,000 a month for 24 months, but when you make games for Atari or you take these assignments, are you getting more money for those? Yeah, so we, we, we were getting $50,000 a month to fund the company with no real obligation to turn in a game. But if we were to turn in a game, uh, we would we would have rights of first refusal to Atari for them to take the game and market it. We Atari never turned down the right of first refusal, so everything went to them. But there was a royalty structure that went with the uh, each of the games. So uh, every time something published, we were making money off of it. I have to say, it sounds like a pretty sweet deal. In your life, have you ever, ever got a better deal than that? Uh, yes, but it would go back to Ms. Pac-Man when we... Uh, uh, sold pieces of it over and over again over the years. But, uh, <laughs> That's good. Still a good deal. Okay, yeah. so a couple things on this list are interesting. Choplifter. Did you guys start work for the 2600? Did you start working on a choplifter on your own? I don't remember what happened there. Um, and as you see, it, it, it did not ship. Yeah. Um, okay, let's go. So, so I'm looking at this list of VCS games, and this is like a murderer's row of like the best games on the VCS. Not all the best games, but certainly... You know, after there was the Pac-Man debacle, and actually there was more than just Pac-Man. Like Defender came out on the VCS, and it was it wasn't that great either. There was a whole string of sort of subpar games right at the time that like the ColecoVision was coming out, and 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 game and systems that had way better graphics. So to me, when I was a kid, I'm like, oh my, Atari's like failing. Like I need to figure out what to do now because I'm love video games, but I this is I'm 12 years old. I can't be seen with the Atari, right? <laughs> then. Miss Pac-Man Vanguard first, then Miss Pac-Man. We did the whole version for the 2600, and it was 
you know, just like so much better than Pac-Man. It looked, I mean, really as close as you could to Ms. Pac-Man, it played well. And I think that was one of the real keys because you could never make these games look as good as the arcade games if you didn't have the hardware capability. But we wanted it to play as, you know, so it felt reminiscent of playing that arcade game in terms of the gameplay and the feel of the game. And we spent a lot of time on that aspect of these games. So it's not just how it looks, which is, of course, important, but how it plays. Like, we wanted it to be as fun as the arcade game. Miss Pac-Man blew me away and everyone else I knew because it's so vastly superior to Pac-Man. Now, we know there are reasons why, right? There's reasons why Todd Fry had to do what he did and the reason why. But... But do you was there an inflection point with any of these games like Miss Pac-Man where you realized how much better the stuff you were doing could be? Was there a reason for that? Were you allowed more memory, you know, more time? Um, I guess what I'm, I'm searching for is like what made Miss Pac-Man or another game at the time so much better that it sort of revitalized the VCS for a short time in my eyes or the eyes of consumers because these games were so much better than what we'd seen before. Well, Miss Pac-Man is probably a great example, and it had reasons other than all the other games. You you asked about how we got paid. We got paid a royalty for developing uh, the 2600 game. We also were getting paid a royalty on all Miss Pac-Man products shipped. <laughs> so we were getting a double royalty on that game, and we did not want to screw it up. Oh, no. So if you notice, we put uh, four of us on it, and really viewed it was going to be the best we could possibly do and focusing in on trying to fix some of the stuff uh, that was in the pac-man one which to be fair was a smaller rom size and developed with uh, a lot less time on it you know by the time we did the ms pac-man cartridge we we probably had two man years of engineering on it which wow. uh, never would have happened uh at uh atari because uh they were generally assigning one person and telling him he had to have it in time for Christmas. But I, I think uh, we uh, were very much uh, perfectionists in terms of trying to mimic the arcade game. Yeah. And uh, one of the you know b best examples I give uh, to people when we were working on it was uh, on Ms. Pac-Man, uh, when you tried simulating the joystick of the arcade which was a four position gated joystick. And you tried doing it with the eight position Atari joystick uh, on the 2600. And the, the first pass at it says, well, that's real, relatively simple. You've got upright, left, uh, down. Mm -hmm. and then if you go on a diagonal, you just choose one or the other. And that's not what you do when you play. On a gated one, you obviously you're up, down, right, left. Yep. But on an ungated one, if you were going up or up left or upright, I guess I'm drawing uh, right now, <laughs> whether you meant to go right or whether you meant to go up is critical to what you're doing in the maze. Absolutely critical. And right, if it yeah. doesn't do the right thing, you get upset. Now, the joystick is not the same. You can't gate it, so you can't cause it not to go to the diagonal. But you could look at it and say, how would you get there? So if you were going right and then you went up or right, we said you now meant to go up. And so we kind of looked at how you got there. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time, you know, on this very, very simple thing, but we had to get the joystick feeling good uh, so that 
as you moved around the maze, it really felt like the arcade one where we had, you know, a different type of joystick, which would not work properly uh, if we just did it simply. Well, you, you never went from neutral to diagonal. It would always trip one switch or the other first. So if you're at neutral and you go, and the first thing we see is a right, we're going to start moving your right. If we then see right and up, we now said you, you are at right. So now you, you've moved it upwards and now you're going up. And it's, it's amazing that that just makes it feel correct. Centipede has one of the best title screens of any Atari VCS game. Means I know title screens sound superfluous, but <laughs> at the time, they actually weren't. Like, if you wanted to, to get invested into the game itself, that little piece of window dressing did a lot to make you feel as if you were playing the real arcade game. Centipede is has an incredible title screen. And I wanted to ask you, where did that come from? Scroll down to the bottom if you can. Okay, I'm scrolling down to the bottom. So look at look at the last five people. Daryl uh, Myers, Paul Moody, Randall McLamb, Marshall Peck, Patty Goodson. So four of the five of them are graphic artists. And so on the 2600 and the 7800 or all the games, they would be designing graphics. Many times... The graphics they designed did not fit, but they were trying to do something quite elaborate um, and show themselves off as graphic artists without worrying too much about the limitations of the system. When we ran out of memory, some of the graphics got cut or whatever, uh, but it was for them a area to uh, have some fun and to really you know, kind of polish up the game. So the four of them were often doing some fun title screens and making the game really look interesting right from the start. It was usually the first thing cut or <laughs> uh, when the game did not fit. So uh, there were probably some very, very sexy uh, title screens that did not make it. Now, okay. when, when, I, when I mentioned those four artists, uh, the, the other one uh, was uh, Patty Goodson, who uh, I believe was a Juilliard musician, really knew her stuff. And you know, we knew her brother back in college and convinced her to come in and try making some sounds out of the 2600, which I think she attacked it with the same energy that we were attacking trying to reproduce video games, uh, where you know we, we all know the TIA chip can not do much in the 2600 no. making sounds. She did some amazing things to get things to sound great uh, with limited ability. Got some good music and things and whatever. So she was quite crucial to getting the sounds there. And then as we did the 7800, continuing to improve things. Most of the 7800 games still use the TIA, right? You could have a pokey on in the cartridge, but only a couple games use the pokey. I know Ball Blazer did, but a game like... A Desert Falcon, which I don't think has a pokey on board. I mean, the you're, sound. You're correct. Great. So, so um, with one or two exceptions, the 7800 cartridges were all using the uh, TIA. Also, the better sound came out of the fact that we were making larger cartridges and also had more uh, processing power to create sounds using the TIA. With dedicated artists and musicians on staff and an open shared working environment, 
GCC may have been one of the first real outsourced game studios ever created. This is especially true when it comes to sounds and music. The TIA chip on the Atari 2600 is not a dedicated sound chip. The television interface adapter has many functions, and only one of them is to play a limited range of sounds through two channels. Early Atari VCS games suffered from sound that really only hinted at what the games were trying to portray. While some of the sounds from these early years have become very special to Atari fans, just as much as box art and playfield graphics, when the TIA was pushed to create the sounds of arcade games, it met its match. However, with professional musicians on staff at GCC pushing the limits of what the 2600 and later the 7800 could achieve with the TIA chip, things changed. Listen and watch now to a sample of the sounds and the graphics work of the GCC artistic staff. processing power and ROM size made a difference, or RAM size also. So the, the point is, is that the TIA itself could emit a certain amount of tones. The amount of data that you could push to it in the right timing could actually make it sound better. Yes. So, okay, Mill Millipede is in the book, Games That Never Were. The Games That ne Never Were. I don't want to ruin that for people. It's a, it's a cool story. I think they should go get the book. Uh, and did you contribute to that book, or did were you interviewed for that book? Yes, as was the Atari engineer that worked on it. And uh, we, we were 
both nice to each other. Uh, we were competitive at the time that I think we had certain advantages because we had the centipede code to work from and we had more people be able to put on it and uh, you know we're really trying to and I think we started before they did. They did a good job also. We thought ours was better, uh, but it came down to what we believe was a political decision that we were not officially assigned the uh, millipede title when we started on it. And I don't know whether it was a wrist slap or just to help out uh, the morale at Atari at the time. They chose the Atari one, which we think ours was slightly better, uh, but both were well done. Real Sports Tennis, maybe an odd one for me to pick out. I thought that was a great game. Yeah, so that that one, um, we we I, I still don't think gameplay came out as well as we wanted it to. We started off uh, just working on trying to design a good looking net, a good looking scoreboard, having people be able to write things on the scoreboard, which was exciting. And so we we built out the graphics, and it looked really good. Uh, we had trouble, as many people have, with sports type games being played uh, on a relatively simple system. Right. I think it, it came out well, but uh, not really well in terms of uh, having great gameplay. I, I think the graphics, at, when it first came out, were quite stunning. Yeah, they were quite stunning. I mean, Activision had tennis, which looked good as well, but this looked better in some ways, right? It was more colorful. I think tennis had the the shadow on the ball, which you guys had as well, right? So you could see yes. If it was lobbying and stuff. Do you, do you remember if that was an assignment or if you guys just picked it up and said, let's do a ten tennis game? I think it was an assignment okay. um, that they were mentioning several they had and we said, we'll, we'll give tennis a try. The first thing we did was the scoreboard and the net and we go, okay, I think we can do this, but I'm not sure we knew exactly how to make great tennis gameplay. I think Galaxion was a really interesting one. I did not work on it, but I remember when uh, Mark Ackerman and Glenn Parker were playing with the TIA and uh, realized that they could cause things to happen. And I forget exactly how they caused it, but if you look at most 2600 games, the most characters you'll see on a line is six yep. because each of the two uh, stamps or whatever you want to call them, sprites, can be tripled. Um, so you could get six on a line. They figured out how to poke the hardware in a weird way, and I think got eight characters across, which were really important to making it feel like the Galaxion game. Oh, yeah. One of the main areas of confusion about the credits for Atari Inc. games is the Atari 5200. Atari's 1982 game console was quickly developed to combat the threat from Intellivision and ColecoVision. It was based on three-year-old hardware, and it was a system that should have been released in 1979. Many of the developer credits for Atari 5200 games are simply not known. When soundtrack specialist made his request on Twitter for GCC credits, he was specifically asking for Atari 5200 credits. Intertwined with the Atari 5200 is the Atari 400, 800, XL, XE, and XEGS. This was Atari's line of magnificent 8-bit computers, and they shared an architecture with the Atari 5200. In fact, the original Atari 400 from 1979 was designed as a game system that could replace the Atari 2600. The 5200 was not 100% compatible with the Atari 8-bit computers. The simplified operating system meant a few changes were required to make the code for the 5200 games work on the Atari 8-bit and vice versa. I personally loved my Atari 8-bit computer. My 
brother and I received a secondhand Atari 800 for Christmas in 1983, and it literally changed our lives. We started programming it on Christmas evening and never looked back. In fact, I have no idea where I'd be now if it didn't happen. But it wasn't all serious stuff with the Atari 800. The secondhand machine came with loads of games. I was mesmerized by the nearly arcade perfect versions of Kicks, Vanguard, Dig Dug, and many more. It made my 13-year-old self want to learn programming as fast as possible so I could realize my dream of working for Atari making games. Little did I know that many of those very same arcade games I played in my Atari 100 were not created by the Wizards of Silicon Valley, but instead far away in Cambridge, Mass, in the nondescript Athenium House office on 215 First Street, the headquarters of GCC. Lost Credit, The Secret Atari Heroes of GCC, Part 2. Here's Doug McRae beginning our conversation about the Atari 5200. Yeah, so, so we, we were asking somewhat the same way, and the common name you'll see on that a lot is Mike Horowitz. Yeah. Mike kind of headed up uh, the 5200 group. Um, and, uh, so he, I think did the first cartridge on it, I'm trying to remember whether that was kicks or what he did. Um, kicks is an amazing game. So, um, Good I remember, I remember Mike being assigned, Hey, go figure out how to write for the 5200 and, uh, uh choose a cartridge to try doing. And I think it was kicks that he, uh, first did. Oh, that's nice. Now, I know someone specifically asked me about pole position. So Mike Horowitz, Betty Ryan are the are the Atari 5200 pole position developers. So Mike, again, do you remember if any of these games made it to the Atari, uh, the Atari 8-bit computers since they're the same architecture? I, I believe they all did. Okay. Um, that um, we, we did not add them to the list because uh, they were not necessarily another project. Uh, but ended up a different uh, uh, SKU or a uh, different box uh, being sold at retail. Uh, for that matter, uh, I should probably have combined Rubik's Cube and Atari Video Cube since they were pretty much the same code. Each of these 5200, I believe, went out on the 400-800 computer also in a different cartridge. Of course, yeah, the different cartridge size. Um, yeah. That was massive. What did you think of the 5200 when you saw it originally? I had wanted better um, that, um, you know, we, we had uh, frustrated ourselves over uh, programming the 2600 uh, games and keep on going, if only, and then the 5200 came out and we go, all right, you know, that was once again rushed to market uh, by grabbing what they had on the 400-800 computer and saying, we have to get a base system out there quickly. And, um, you know, I... I wish engineers could have started on it earlier and give, be given more time and resources to have done it right. Uh, Atari obviously knew how to do it right. They had a great uh, arcade division back then and whatever. Um, but uh, the 5200, I think, had to be put together quickly, and uh, it had a lot of shortcomings. Yeah. Yeah. What was the... You know, obviously the, the the shortcomings are legendary. Like the well, it was giant for one. The cartridges were giant too. I guess because they wanted it to look like it was worth more money. Um, could have been backwardsly compatible with the Atari four hundred eight hundred if they wanted it to be, which would have been maybe a benefit. Um, the controllers, though, I mean, I see you guys 
worked on Miss Pac-Man and Junior Pac-Man. Um, what, it, what would you remember if the controllers were a problem for those games? They were not great, um, but we really did not have ability to change those. So no. we, we would have done things similar to what I described on the 2600 in terms of uh, doing the best we can to make the controller work. Uh, but obviously the controller could not be changed out. Yeah. So you've got one here. Phoenix did not ship. Do you remember anything about that? Why Phoenix didn't ship? No. And I've been trying to get in, in contact with John Morassic. When I pulled together this list, uh, um, I first heard from uh, uh, somebody saying, well, we're not sure John worked on it, uh, but I had notes uh, that he did. And then I went and started doing my internet search and found out it did not ship. And I don't know why. Uh, hmm. So uh, I will try filling in those details. At okay. some it is fascinating. So, I mean, if you, if you look at, I mean, I, I, I also had an Atari 8-bit computer and a lot of these games, you know, were standouts on that as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking at, at, at a, a large portion of my childhood here, Doug, and going, wow, well, you guys made most of it. Um, <laughs> they were there were significant you know significantly better than some other titles that came out which is which is pretty good lending itself to me believing that you guys had sort of some sort of magic going on there which obviously not but there's something right there's some chemistry going on at gcc that helps you guys build this stuff Let's just for a minute put the work of GCC into perspective. This is a quote from AtariMuseum.com. GCC's programmers would do almost all of the Atari 2600 and 5200 games in 1983 and 1984 for Atari. Atari's programmers in Sunnyvale, California were jumping ship to start their own firms. After another group left to start a magic, another group threatened to leave Atari. Steve Ross, head of Warner Communications, of which Atari was a subsidiary, contacted GCC about doing games for Atari. Not only was GCC able to code games for Atari's consoles, they were doing it in weeks compared to months. Steve Ross, and soon all within Warner, started to call GCC the toaster. Steve Ross was fond of saying, just pop in the game specs to GCC, and out popped a finished game, just like a toaster. Here is Doug McCray. Um, okay, so the 7800, how does this come about? Is it from you or is it from Atari? Kind of a combination. As the 5200 was being introduced, we were looking at it and saying that there are things that should have been done significantly better, more starting from scratch. We viewed, A, you had to have 2600 compatibility uh, because you couldn't ask people just to throw out their old library. Because some people said, well, I'll just hook up two boxes, but uh, that was a, a very elegant solution. So we viewed it. Compatibility on the 2600 was important. And then as we started saying, you know, what does it have to do in terms of our gameplay? We went through many, many of the existing arcade games and said, all right, we have to do a reasonable reproduction of each of these arcade games. And we probably had 20 on the list. The toughest one on the list was Robotron. Here is Michael Feinstein. And like, I mean, I would play Robotron during my, you know, lunch break in the middle of the day, and I would break a sweat. I was playing <laughs> that game so intensely. I loved it, you know? So it was just, I think there's an intensity to Robotron that very few games 
in match. And, anyway. and and you could not recreate that on the twenty six hundred in any reasonable yeah, way. Impossible. Right? It, it Even be, hard on like the fifty two hundred too, probably. Yeah. No. But so the thing that I think was great is just, you know, because one, we had all this experience with all these different kinds of games that, you know, collectively needed all different kinds of capabilities. And we knew all the constraints of the twenty six hundred and where all the problems were. We're trying to, you know, use a system that primitive. We just, it helped us really think, what what do we really want? Like, what's our wish list of capabilities? You know, to be able to do all these games and to make them feel really like the arcade game. Here is Doug McCray. So that was it a goal to be able to replicate Robotron? Yes. So uh, Tom Westberg, who is kind of the lead uh, hardware engineer on the 7800 system, was a Robotron fanatic. <laughs> and so... Uh, the original kind of target spec of what the 7800 had to be able to do was to support 80 sprites uh, on the screen so you could do Robotron. Now let's 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 put that in perspective. The Atari 8-bit computers could do four sprites and four missiles. The 2600 could really do two sprites, two missiles, and a ball. Even the NES was like eight sprites per line was what they could do. But you're talking about 80 sprites on the screen all the same time in arbitrary locations. Correct. <laughs> it, it meant that the whole programming and how you do it was going to be done in a different way uh, with display lists and then eventually display list lists and all kinds of bizarre concepts. Uh, but Robotron was one of the ones really driving it, say, okay, if you can do that, you can do most games. Uh, and so that was kind of the uh, standard bearer for what the hardware had to be able to do. Um, but the, the other fascinating thing we had going for us when we were doing the 7800 is we were developing the hardware and software in parallel, right. uh, which can be a nightmare, but it can also be an amazing opportunity to have the software people make requests saying, okay, so this is what you originally designed in the or, or designing in the hardware, but I can't do this. And so there are some revisions, which are not great for schedule, but some revisions that were being done because we got pretty far into some programming and say, oh, this isn't good enough to do what we need to do. The hardware team worked very closely with the software team to figure out how to get it all uh, working. Here is Steve Golson. What we wanted to do was use a completely different type of graphics architecture. Everything was this, what we call player missile graphics. Yeah, like hardware sprite based or something. Hardware right? sprites, right? That's what TIA was. That's what even 5200, the PAM, 400, 800. It was just more sophisticated sprites, players, and missiles. Oh, and then you got a background, a play field. And we said, no, let's do it the way arcade games do it. Arcade games had a line ramp. So it was one scan line. There's no way you could do a complete bitmap, right? But it's one scan line bitmap. And that lets you put any number of sprites in there, however long you, you allow yourself to draw sprites. And well, however much time you have, that's how many you get on that line. And then you go to the next line. So, so that's what we look like. So a double buffered scan line, uh, line ramp. So that was our idea for Maria was we'll do it the way the arcade games do it. You could do a little back of the envelope sketch and realize that, wow, we'll be able to display a whole boatload of stuff on the screen. Here is Doug McCray. 
the the original kind of mock-up hardware uh, came first uh, in a wire wrap version of what it would be doing. The software was being written for several games to start trying that out and also had a software version uh, to try uh, editing the game and whatever. So it was just pieces all coming together in parallel, which um, is a total chaos and a lot of fun and produced <laughs> amazing ability to do graphics that uh, I would not have thought would happen uh, at the uh, very beginning of the project. I believe there was going to be a new sound chip in there. Um, yeah, we, and it didn't we, make we, it in. And do you know what, hap what happened there? Yeah, we, we were working on it. Um, it was coming, it was uh, secondary to the Maria graphic chip that we were working on. Uh, it was called Gumby after Pokey. Uh, once again, <laughs> stupid puns. Uh, chip was behind, and we were also getting too expensive uh, yeah. for the uh, base unit. And we were getting better sounds out of the TIA than we were on the 2600 because we were more free to use processing power and ROM on that. You've got on this list Ball Blazer and Rescue and Fractus. I know Rescue and Fractus was, was also not, didn't ship. Those are LucasArts games. Did you work with LucasArts on that, or was it just copy this as best you can? No, we were working with LucasArts. I think there are quite a few trips out to California to uh, kind of compare notes and think about what should be done. I wanted to find out, do you know if all of these games were actually finished when before the blow up at Atari, or if there's a possibility that some of them got shipped, not quite finished? I think a few of them were not finished. When we say not finished, uh, there's probably not a lot to go. I think uh, Ball Blazer and maybe Rescue and Fractalist got uh, finished up or worked on separately after, but I'm not sure that happened to any of the others as I've just okay. on the list. So, so they were, as far as you know, the, all the game, most of the games were done by the time your, I don't know what you call it, your contract with Atari was over. Well, the contract never really ended. What it, uh, well, the, the two years I uh, said initially, the 50,000 quickly got into a new contract as we started pouring out lots of games and trying to expand. Uh, we, we were, by the end of 1984, we were about 70 engineers uh, wow. in Cambridge uh, helping, you know, do, do uh, all these projects and whatever, and having many engineers on them in parallel. And so our our whole agreement with Atari and Warner Communications uh, had grown over that time to allow us to be doing all of this programming. Here is Michael Feinstein. So you worked on Desert Falcon. Is that a game yeah. that Atari designed or that you guys no, came up with? that was an original game. Okay, so we okay. had, you know, there was a game called Zaxxon yep. in the arcades, which is like same kind of 3D perspective. And we didn't, we didn't do Zaxxon. We didn't have the rights to do Zaxxon for the... For the Atari 2600 or 5200, and so we never did that 3D perspective kind of game. So we said we want to do one. Let's do one original game, and that was Desert Falcon. And so yeah. the the general look, I mean, it doesn't look like Zaxxon in some ways, but that idea of that 3D perspective from the side, you can gauge how high things are because there's a shadow. Um, and then we just went crazy on the gameplay in terms of, um, you know, both. You know, we, we, we decided very, I don't remember how we decided, we decided very early on that it was going to be this Egypt motif. Yeah. And and then, you know, Desert Falcon pretty quickly became the name. Um, but the idea, you know, 
how the gameplay work kept on evolving, right? So there's, you know, things to fly through and around. And then we ended up deciding, like, the bird, which is, like, the character that you're controlling, right. the falcon, was really important. And we gave that bird a ton of personality. So if you spend time with that game, I mean, the bird um, walks, hops, swims, flies, flips over and dies on its back when it gets after this earlier interview with Michael Feinstein, I went back and played Desert Falcon, only to discover that I had missed the game when it originally came out, and I loved it. This sent me on a sort of existential journey into Desert Falcon, where I discovered what I believed to be a connection between GCC and Atari fans to try to figure it all out. In many ways, this game is a poster child for what we refer to as the vertical blank. It represents what could have been. It was created by the right people at the wrong time and then buried for years. If this is what GCC was making in 1984, I just wonder what amazing stuff they would have pushed the 7800 to do by 1987. Desert Falcon now holds a new place for me. I crave playing it to learn all of the combinations and see what lies beyond level 4, the highest level I've achieved. I now know that it was the last great project that the video game masters of GCC made for Atari, and Atari didn't even care. In July 1984, GCC must have felt abandoned by Atari as developers, just like we did as fans. GCC are the mirror image of Atari fans. Maybe that's why I'm so fascinated by them. They are we, and we are them. And that's why the idea of this connection honestly birthed this movie you are watching right now. Here is Doug McCray. You got this did not ship 7800 stuff. Adventure? Sure. Do you remember anything about that? Is it a version Nothing. of Atari Adventure? You know, someone, okay. High score cartridge. I know that that actually was almost, that almost was created. Yeah. So uh, basically all 7,800 games had to, in, in our lab, uh, work with the high score cartridge, which we have many prototypes floating around, uh, where it would write out the uh, high score, a uh, whole high score table uh, for each game. Uh, we always wow. viewed that was a lot about what the arcade was about is being able to put your name up uh, if you're the best. And oh, so yeah. we wanted to do that. We could not burden each of the game cartridges with a uh, memory that could uh, uh, last uh, from losing its power. So uh, we looked and said, well, how about if we had a double-ended cartridge that you plug into the system, then the cartridges we each plug into that. Uh, that would have uh, some SRAM in it that you could write to and store out that information. So that was fully working. It was, uh, and uh, I think it did not get built because uh, it had uh, electronics other than just making a standard cartridge that would have had to be made by Jack Tramell or I don't know how far it got. It was fully working. I think it just never got manufactured. So the things that come after that, the keyboard, typing tutor, Atari writer, basic programming, game construction kit, by the way, that's the most amazing thing. Are these all for the uh, computer expansion that was supposed to come out? Some of the stuff you were just kind of playing with, and most of the stuff was somewhat up and running by the CES that it de debuted at. So Atari Lab here says that David Crane helped work on it. Activision David Crane or a different Dave David Crane? Different David Crane. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Going down the arcade games, obviously Super Missile Attack, U, Crazy Auto, Miss Pac-Man, U, Junior Pac-Man, which is a great game, by the, by the way, U, 
Food Fight, Jonathan Hurd, and the rest, which is probably one of my favorite arcade games ever. And then comes Quantum, which I believe is one of the best games ever made that people have never seen. Um, now, they have seen it now because Atari, the current Atari just made a new version of it, if you're aware of that. Are you guys ever consulted on any of this stuff when they go and redo it? Um, I think Betty uh, Ryan may have been uh, consulted. She, she was one that let me know about it and said, you know, it looks really cool. They changed some things in the game, but uh, the uh, initial concept is still there and plays very well. Yeah, I played this, I don't know, it must have been, let's say it was 10 years ago. And it was back when I myself was working as a programmer making browser games web browser games and and i'm like oh my god this is a web browser game because you it's like you take a mouse if they have that and you would circle things i'm like this is a game 30 years before it's time here is steve colson very early on if you look at so this is early 1982 we're working on firemen we're working on food fight we're working on a game called molecular magic which is what quantum started out as. And we started, uh, the initial development was done on one of the Atari machines. I can't remember which of the color vector machines they had, but very quickly developed our own hardware and our own, uh, one of our engineers, a guy named Art Ng, did the quantum hardware. And he did this just phenomenal job of marrying the 68,000 and the stay machine hardware to do all the vector graphics and the vector fill because it does this really cool thing where it will do this little raster thing to like fill in one of the characters and the uh, the programmer Betty Ryan did basically all the software for it I think she may have had some help with sounds I think sound development came from some of our music people here is Doug McCray do you remember where the idea came from is it was a Betty's idea it was a combination, if, if I remember right, between Mike Horowitz and Betty. I think uh, Mike was originally talking about drawing subatomic particles or whatever uh, up on the screen. Uh, we were using Tempest hardware, uh, doing pretty graphics. And, and what we wanted to do also was incorporate a trackball. And Betty started looking, going, oh, it'd be really neat if you could, you know, circle and grab things. And, oh, yeah. Uh, so Betty ran with that and uh, did a tremendous job. Up until this point, I thought the interview was going really, really well. But for some reason, some reason, this discussion of quantum just had me slip right back into what I call the vertical blank. And I couldn't stop thinking about what could have been. And then I went off on this long tangent trying to explain to Doug what I was thinking at that moment. It is a game that never got its due. It is way before its time from a design standpoint. I don't think anyone was thinking of that type of game at the time, um, of that type of action. You know, you it's 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 one of those games that's kind of like a cleanup a little bit. It's very interesting. Um, it's one of those things that makes me wonder what would you guys have done after that, right? If you given the given the opportunity, what would have come next? Especially with the seven eight hundred stuff, because I feel as if you just got off the ground designing the stuff for the initial 7800 launch. And I wonder, what if you were given, what if in 1986 when it came out, you had three years under your belt building games for the 7800? Could you imagine what you could have done by then? Yeah, no, the, the, the 7800 system uh, was so powerful compared to the 2600, but uh, more importantly, it was more powerful than the Nintendo system. It was just coming out. Yeah.
did I really want to give GCC credit, or was there something else going on here? Was this another self-serving endeavor in the vertical blank? Was I waiting for this very moment when one of the founders of GCC told me they thought the 7800 was better than the Nintendo Entertainment System? And um, if there had not been that two-year pause uh, where Jack Tremell decided he didn't really want to do games other than potentially liquidating what he had in warehouses and Maybe if he had found the 7800 in a warehouse uh, somewhere, he might have tried putting it out there earlier. Uh, but the fact he did not pretty much let uh, the Nintendo system uh, gain market share and uh, never look back. Ah, uh, yes, Jack Tremiel, the man who led Commodore to triumph in home computers with the Commodore 64. He was forced out by the board of directors in 1984, just in time to buy the struggling Atari consumer division from Warner Communications in July 1984. This was the Mount Vesuvius moment for Atari fans like myself. The day everything exploded. The day the golden age of Atari's video games was trapped in suspended animation. Jack Tramiel had very little interest in video games. He wanted to build his 16-bit Atari ST computer as a rival to the Commodore Amiga. I have mixed feelings about him myself. He gave my brother and I an entry into the world of next-generation computing by pricing the ST far below competitors, allowing us to sell our Atari 800 to buy a 520 ST in 1987. But at the same time, he neglected Atari's video game business, including GCC's Atari 7800. And while it's debatable which system, the 7800 NES or Sega, was more powerful in 1984, the truth is Tremiel never gave the 7800 the chance it needed to prove itself. Instead, he created a vacuum, allowing clever and creative rivals to fix the mistakes of the past and take Atari's place as the king of video games. And to be honest, it was not entirely Tramiel's fault. He had to salvage what was left of Atari from the damage Warner did to it. In fact, the death of Atari video games probably lands squarely on the shoulders of Warner Communications, who made the ultimate decision in the summer of 1984 to sell the Atari consumer division and divest themselves of home video games to save the value of Warner stock. Everyone else, GCC, Atari fans, and even Jack Tramiel, was left pretty much holding the bag. Here is Steve Coulson. In order to ramp up your production to be ready for Christmas sales, which have to be in the stores by what, September, yeah. you know, October. So May of 84 is the huge unveiling of 7800 and 14 cartridges, high score cart. They talk about the home computer, all of this stuff for Christmas. They tell the prices, everything, and all of it came from GCC, all of it. So that was going to be Christmas of 84. That was going to be the future, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. that was going to be Christmas of 84. And then July 1st, it all gets sold to Jack. Yeah. So everything gets sold to Jack and we sit down. GCC sits down with Jack, right? Jack, what do you want to do? Jack says, ah, we're going to sell 100,000 7800s for Christmas 84. Great, great, Jack. Sounds good. You know, that was sort of the Atari plan, actually, also, right. to have that many done for Christmas. But Jack says, yeah, we're going to sell them for 50 bucks. <laughs> now, original, the original plan was $150. Yeah. Okay. Of which GCC, we're going to get a cut, right? Right. Royalty. And carts, oh, the cartridges are going to retail for like 10 to $15, which was half of the original prices. 
right? This is, this is Jack's thing, right? You make it incredibly cheap. You sell boatloads of them. And, uh, oh, and he was going to sell a car. He was going to keep selling the 2600. He was going to have a cost reduced 2600 selling for 40 bucks. Wow. Okay. This is Jack. This is his idea, right? And we're just like, Jack, well, you know, that's not, that's not a lot of money. Where's the, where's the money for GCC? Jack's <laughs> like, you don't get any. Right? You know, there's only enough money for me, Jack says. And so GCC were like, no, we're not going along with this. And Jack's like, okay, fine. All I want to do is computers anyway. So who cares about games? Uh, and that was that. And 7800 was dead. As Steve Golson said, by the end of 1984, 7800 was dead. And I think I now know what I've been searching for. Through four interviews and hours of comments, I just wanted to know that the death of the 7800 affected GCC the same way it affected me as a kid in 1984. But just when I think I've gone off the edge, when I think I've taken the conversation into a corner I can't return from, Doug McRae says something remarkable. He admits he sometimes also thinks about what could have been. He too sometimes enters the vertical blank. We always do scratch our head and say, what would have happened if the system came out when it was introduced in 1984 and started shipping and we were still applying huge number of engineers to development of it. And I, I think Nintendo may not have even happened or would have happened in a much different way. And uh, Atari could have still been in the driver's seat in terms of owning the market and benefiting from you know, really being the leader in the game systems. And with that comment, it all came back into perspective. My goal was to find the credits. I wanted to find the names of the people, some of which who have been lost to time, who made these games. But there is something still bothering me. It's the idea that the head of Warner Communications, Steve Ross, called GCC the toaster. GCC was not a toaster. GCC was people. People who created an environment where technical feats and artistic endeavors could flourish. People who could have done a lot more if only fate had allowed it. People who did amazing things that I got to experience firsthand. People who did them at a time in my life when amazement was in short supply. People like the ones I see in the 1983 staff photo of GCC. People like Doug McRae. So GCC in 1984, uh, during the Super Bowl, we watched a commercial from Apple about 1984 and the Macintosh. And we had already started worrying about uh, where Atari was going to be in terms of uh, our marketing arm, if you want to view it that way, or our licensor. And so we shifted about half of our engineering staff immediately to working on products with Macintosh. We were getting frustrated with the Macintosh not having a hard drive, so it was really slow and really cumbersome. And so we uh, built the first internal hard disk for the Macintosh called Hyperdrive, which sold really well. And then in 1993, I think, I spun off another company from that to do uh, on-screen television guides. At, at its peak, uh, I had as my customer 19 of the 20 largest uh, consumer electronic companies in the wow. world that made televisions. All of them were paying us money to license our technology to go inside the televisions. 
Much of the GCC staff went on to do amazing things. There is a slide in Steve Golson's 2016 GDC presentation that lists the companies they went off to affect. Places like Yahoo, Adobe, eBay, Digital Lumens, Gracenote, Sony, Creative Data, NVIDIA, Lotus, just to name a few. Here's Jonathan Hurd. So I joined another startup, but a year and a half later, I was back at GCC because they had created this internal hard disk for the Apple Macintosh called Hyperdrive. Oh. And um, that, and we, we ended up having a company that grew to be a $50 million-ish range supplier of Macintosh printers and hard disk. So um, it was a, uh, a GCC branded, uh, wow. GC score days. And then I got into Harvard Business. When I got out, I was a marketing executive, including time at GCC, my third stint there. And then I was looking around for the next uh, next thing, and I thought, hey, I went to Harvard Business School. I should look into being a strategy consultant to see if that's a possibility. And I got hired by a strategy consulting firm called Mercer Management Consulting. Wow. So for the past 26 years, I've been a strategy consultant, but my current firm uh, is called Altman Valandry and Company. Do any of your colleagues know that you used to work on all the Tar games? <laughs> they they all end up finding out because it's uh you know it's a fun fact that not only do I mention every now and then but they tell each other too. Here's Steve Golson. But then by end of '84, all the game stuff is gone. Huge layoff. Lots of people are gone, and you're left with this much smaller company that's focused on Macintosh. Well, and you were still there, right? So let's oh no, I got laid off. Oh, you know. yeah. Yeah, I got laid off. Yeah. So I went back to school, got my degree. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Sure. Good job. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Here's Michael Feinstein. Kind of led to why I ended up going into management. So when I kind of realized, and maybe I wouldn't have articulated it this way at the time, but certainly in hindsight, is that, you know, computers are boring because they do exactly what you tell them. They, you might tell them the wrong thing and they won't work, and but they just very reliably do exactly what you tell them. Humans are not. Humans are way more complex. They don't do what you tell them. You could tell them the same thing three days in a row and they're going to do different things. <clears throat> they're much more complex systems. And I was like, I'm intrigued about how to manage and work with humans because it's so much harder. Here is Doug McCray. This is a this is a pretty incredible list of stuff that you provided. And I know it's not done, but when you see this list of what you guys did, how does it make you feel? Oh, we, we were having the times of our lives back then. It was so exciting to be able to work with all the engineers we had, all enjoying what they were doing, uh, pushing the limits. And it really felt like each cartridge was even better than the last that we did, <laughs> uh, particularly for 2600, because we kept on getting better. And it is surprising that you can get better and better and better on the same hardware. Uh, but uh, you, you learn tricks and you push yourself more and people share uh, a lot of information about, oh, we tried this and this is what happens. Uh, 2600, you know, kept kept getting uh, longer legs to, you know, keep going. Uh, you know, when I went back and started looking at all these names and trying to pull together the list, you go, wow. You know, wow. this was a really stellar team that was put together because we all enjoyed what we were doing and uh, all pushed ourselves to make better and better games. And uh, it was a fascinating time. I wish it would last another year or two or maybe 10.
After interviewing four people from GCC and hearing hours of their remarkable stories, I feel like their story has been cracked, maybe just a little. Soon we'll have the credits updated and published around the internet, and for me, one of the last mysteries of the golden age of Atari will finally be solved. So maybe this is the end. Maybe now this job is done. The vertical blank will be closing. With no mysteries left, is our job truly over? I look at the credits list again. Well, maybe not everything is solved. For example, I still can't get over the fact that Steve Szymanski was working on basic programming and game construction kit for the Atari 7800. Just imagine how amazing those would have been if they came out in 1984. I mean, what if Atari never went out of business in 1984? What if game construction kit came out? What if... 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 By the way, speaking of credit, Doug McRae's brother, who owned the original Pioneer pinball machine that Doug took to the MIT dorms, his name was Scott. Scott McRae. Thanks, Scott. Now you got credit, too. Into the vertical blank. Sorry.